1: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns,
0: opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
1: Hello, everybody, welcome to another edition of Wrestleomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It is Saturday, May 30th. I am now surrounded by foam wedges. This is out a little bit later than usual. Had to take mom to the hospital yesterday. She's doing better today, though. I think everything's going to be okay. I'm going to try a slightly different recording method this time. You may or may not even notice, but let's see how it goes. An update from the world of investing. The average analyst estimate of W's earnings per share for the entire year of 2020 is about $1.27. What does that mean? That implies that the net income... Wait, what's net income? Net income is a measure of profit. Basically, W's final profit after taxes. So, the average analyst estimate of the EPS of $1.27, that implies a net income of of $108 million for the year. If that pans out, if that becomes true at the end of 2020, then WWE will have set its all-time record for net income on an annual basis. And yes, in case you forgot, this comes at a time when no other wrestling company is making cuts and WWE is. WWE laid off on April 15th a number of talent, furloughed a number of employees, laid off a number of employees, In fact, there was news coming out from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter this week that Bushiroad has cut salaries of executives but have laid off no one. Bushiroad is the parent company of New Japan Pro Wrestling and of stardom. Directors of Bushiroad and their group companies, according to the Observer, would have pay cut from 15% to 95%, somewhere in that range, depending on the person for the five-month period covering May through September. Advertising is being cut, but employees' salaries and bonuses are not. Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, writes that New Japan Pro Wrestling will start returning to live events soon if they're able to do shows with uh, fans in attendance or they may do empty arena shows. In fact, I wrote some 5,000, 6,000 words uh, in the past week looking at the number of COVID-19 cases in areas where pro wrestling is prevalent, like the United States, Florida, the Florida counties of Duval and Orange County. Uh, which is where Jacksonville and Orlando is, where WWE and AEW are running. Mexico, where, of course, CML and AAA live. And Japan, where a number of Japanese companies run. And I don't know if people really understand uh, the, just what's going on as far as COVID-19 throughout the world and in the, the particular areas where pro-wrestling is popular, or if they just think that, that testing explains the way at all, or if the issue is just too complicated to try to understand. So I'll try to make this as, as simple but as informative as possible, Let's look at weekly cases per million, break it down by that kind of slice. Weekly cases per million, this is from May 21st to May 28th, the week that just recently ended. United States, weekly cases per million, 518. In Florida only, 271. In Mexico, 184. Japan, 2. I'll say it again, United States, 518. Florida, 271. Mexico, 184. Japan, two cases per million. That means in Japan versus the United States, the United States has about 250 times the number of cases per million. Now, I know what you're thinking. The United States is doing a lot of testing. They are. That's true. But in the United States, we're still finding more positive cases per test than Japan, for example. In Japan, about every 16 or 17 tests returns a positive test. In the United States, about eight or nine Tests every eight or nine returns one positive test. So the rate is higher for finding positive tests in the United States. And I admit, I don't know whether one country is using one kind of test more than the other. Is testing more accurate in the United States than in Japan? If you know, tell me, but I don't have information that leads me to believe that testing is more accurate in the United States. And I don't have information that you know, leads me to believe that in Japan, they're testing more people without a reason to suspect COVID which is something that could account for their higher rate if that were the case. But I don't know of information that leads me to believe that that's the case. But what's the big deal? Cases are starting to decline in the United States overall. Cases were starting to decline in Florida. Cases in Florida are still relatively high compared to Japan, even compared to Mexico. Over the last four weeks, though, weekly cases per million in Florida have not shown a consistent pattern of decline as they've been bouncing back and forth Weekly cases per million between 243, 241, 282, 271. Where am I getting this data from, by the way? The Florida data in particular, I'm getting from the Florida Department of Health, from the Florida COVID-19 dashboard, which you can find at floridahealth.gov. The national data for the U.S., Japan, and Mexico is coming from ourworldanddata.org, which is ultimately getting its data from the European CDC, which ultimately gets its data from government sources. You can look into this for yourself and look at the data explanations that are on ourworldindata.org. I also got Tokyo information in particular from the Tokyo Metropolitan Government website. That's at metro.tokyo.lg.jp. And when you look at things at a more local level, Duval County and Orange County, Duval County is where Jacksonville is. Orange County is where Orlando is. Those cases are still on the rise. Now, they're not as high as they were In early April, that's when things peaked in those two Florida counties, where there were, for some days, over 40 cases per million. But now, both counties, Duval, ahead of Orange, Duval, it's seven-day moving average in the high 20s, cases per million. Orange County, in the high teens, cases per million. And growing, both on a trajectory that's moving upward. Again, not as high as its peak in early April, but moving upward. Upward. Tokyo, on the other hand, its seven-day moving average now at around one case per million, some days less than one case per million. That's way down from its peak in mid-April of as many as 12 cases per million. And these are all daily stats that I'm looking at here. So Tokyo, compared to the two counties where AW and WB are running, you've got between 20 and 30 times more cases per million on a daily basis. 20 to 30 times. As we know, AW and WB are taping shows Several times a month. And I'm not necessarily trying to make a conclusion about whether or not they should be doing wrestling with empty arenas or with the, the number of people that they do have in there. I'm not, ne- not necessarily trying to make a judgment about that. But let's think about the risk and think about the amount of COVID-19 prevalence in their areas. And let's also think about the precautions that those organizations are taking. At least AEW and even UFC that's doing some events in Florida. At least they have administered COVID testing. WWE has not administered COVID testing to any of its personnel in advance of any of its tapings. As far as we know, I reached out a couple of times to WB, not that I necessarily expect them to respond, but they did not respond. And they have not told anyone, as far as I know, that they are doing any kind of COVID testing. And I think back to Vince McMahon's April 23rd comments on the last earnings call, when he said, when testing comes along, you can do this, you can do that. When they become more prevalent, referring to testing, and hopefully more accurate, will be right there with the first. Now, testing perhaps has not become more accurate since April 23rd, but it does seem that testing has become more prevalent, that is more available, and it remains unexplained why AEW and UFC are doing testing in Florida, but WB, which by all impressions should be able to afford it and make it happen, has not made it happen. And if I were a WWE investor, which I am not, I would want to know why the company is risking one of its greatest assets, arguably its greatest asset, its talent, its personnel, why the company is risking the health of that talent and personnel more than it needs to by not administering the testing that it could administer. If you want to run events and continue to do events and protect the TV rights, that's one thing. And if I'm a purely economically interested investor, I want you to do that. But why not test people as they come in for tapings or before they come in for tapings? Why risk their health and safety? Why risk the bad press that may come along with multiple transmissions among talent and personnel? This is a company that's going to have record profits by all all indications in the year 2020. Yet testing isn't happening, and there's no explanation why testing isn't happening. Each time you continue to run events without doing testing in advance, you are continuing to risk the TV rights fees, which is the whole reason why you're continuing to do these events. Well, most of the reason. And each taping day that this goes on, you're risking there being some sort of outbreak that hinders taping, And that may impede your ability to continue taping. And again, that that's purely an economic investor perspective, in my opinion. That says nothing about, oh, this is unsafe and you just shouldn't be doing it for safety and health and moral reasons. I don't even need to go there. At least in terms of you should be testing people. If I'm an investor, you're continuing to risk your assets and to risk your ability to collect TV rights fees that make up the majority of your revenue especially in a year where you're not getting revenue from a lot of other sources. You'll go on your earnings call on April 23rd and talk about how you'll exude an abundance of caution when it comes to the financial picture of your company so you can do cost cutting. Out in an abundance of caution, to be overly cautious, you're going to do a lot of cost cutting, even though you've got large cash and debt resources. But where is the caution when it comes to protecting your talent and protecting your ability to extract TV rights? Or is the problem that that is just not a macho move that's being made in response to your failing football company? In other news, Vince McMahon uh, denied that he is, in fact, trying to buy back the XFL. According to Kevin Seifert at ESPN, Vince McMahon said Tuesday in in a bankruptcy court that he will not attempt to buy back the league. The deposition obtained by ESPN reads uh, McMahon saying, I don't know why that's out there making me out to be the bad guy that I'm going to buy back the XFL for pennies on the dollar, basically. To follow up on something we touched on last week, uh, Variety reports that Dark Side of the Ring uh, has become Vice TV's highest-rated series ever. Of course, Dark Side of the Ring ended its second season recently with an episode on the death of Owen Hart. Recent developments in viewership with the four major TV programs that air nationally in the U.S. on major stations. AEW and NXT this week combined, equals RAW in the P18-49 to 49 key demographic. That's the second time that's happened this month, in this month of May. And back in September, I did a PDF for PayHip, where I did some estimates, and I basically wrote or predicted that I think that, I thought that AEW and NXT combined their viewership would start to intersect or would consistently intersect uh, Raw and SmackDown individually. That means they would be at the same level or ahead of Raw or Raw and or SmackDown individually by 2021. We're starting to see signs of that already here in the middle of 2020. And that further supports this idea that I see talked a lot about in media and in tech business, that COVID-19 is becoming an accelerator of a lot of business processes, a lot of phenomena here in the middle of 2020. Things that were on a trajectory to happen maybe in a year from now, a couple years from now, what have you, are happening at a much quicker rate. But the thing about in practical terms what this means, it means that at least for people within the ages of 18 to 49, there are, are as many people watching wrestling on TV on Wednesday nights between the two programs as are watching WWE Monday Night Raw. Think about that. And think further, how would AEW Dynamite be doing if WWE didn't put NXT up against it head-to-head on Wednesday nights? Now, I don't think that every viewer that's watching NXT on a regular basis would be an an AEW viewer, but maybe half. So we we would be getting in a situation where AEW Dynamite inches closer and closer as raw viewership declines over time, which we'll talk about more in a second. But as as raw viewership declines over time, especially during this time of COVID-19 where there aren't fans in the crowd, WS has changed that a bit with its hockey glass and putting NXT people in the, in the uh, audience. But where Raw viewership in particular has declined quite a bit over time, and it seems to be on a pretty consistent co- trajectory on a linear line into the future as it continues to decline. In the case of Dynamite or or NXT, we don't have that much data yet. We don't have a full year of trends yet for either of those two programs, obviously. But we'll see how things turn out which brings me to something else I want to talk about that sort of ties to that article that I wrote back in September roughly a lifetime ago where I felt pretty confident that raw is going to continue to decline over time smackdown I would I would say that about except for the fact that smackdown is is affected and boosted over the years by the uh, the changes that have been made to its time slot, to the fact that it's going live versus taped, maybe that matters, maybe it doesn't, but especially its change of networks going from sci-fi to an improved improvement in the USA network to an improvement in the Fox network. And economically, business-wise, overall, that's been a great move for WWE. It really helps WWE to be able to sell Raw and SmackDown as separate properties and separate deals. One to NBC Universal, Raw, and one to Fox, SmackDown, They got a lot more money on their TV rights fees because they were able to split that up. And they were able to split that up because they were able to enhance the value, enhance the viewership of SmackDown by moving it over to the USA Network, moving it over to a live night, giving it its own separate roster. And USA was probably happy to do that at the time because it gave them even more live programming. But it also helped... WWE build up the value of that SmackDown property so they had not just a, f- a five-hour package of TV rights to sell, where really it was the three hours that were most valuable, but to where they had more of an equality between Raw and SmackDown in terms of their value per hour. And as listeners may know, that resulted in Raw going to NBC Universal for an average annual value of $263 million, SmackDown going to Fox for an average annual value of $205 million, a total average annual value of $470 million, believed to be a 3.6x increase. In fact, WWE has confirmed that. A 3.6x increase over the previous round where they just sold Raw and SmackDown together to NBC Universal. But anyway, I digress. The average annual WWE Raw TV rating. And if there was some way to adjust for the network changes in SmackDown, I think you would see this as well. But we only have this with Raw, where Raw has been in the same time slot, on the same network. Uh, It was on TNN, actually, for for a few years there, right? But it's been in the same time slot and on a major network for its entire history, major cable network, been on the USA network for most of that time. And if you put its average annual TV ratings on a graph, if you start the clock at 2001, it's incredibly consistent what the decline is. The R-squared relationship between the years as the years go on and the TV rating is a 0. 0.92. What does that mean? And what the hell is an R squared? I don't know. It but 0. 0.92 means uh it's it's <laughs> a perfect R squared is a 1.0. A totally random relationship is a 0. A perfect negative relationship would be a negative 1.0. So again, from 2001 to 2019 we've got a 0.92, pretty close to a perfect relationship. I would call that a strong relationship. Now, if you start the clock a little bit later, in the year of 2009, going 10 years out through 2019, you get a 0.96, a slightly stronger relationship between the time going by and the TV ratings moving. And for what it's worth, 2009 happens to be the year that the percentage of households in the U.S. who have pay TV that is cable or satellite, that percentage peaks in 2009. So basically, uh, pay TV proliferation starts to decline after 2009. Now, this is not me necessarily trying to make an argument about W popularity. That is a different discussion that I would use different data to to argue, arguably successfully. <laughs> but rather, what I'm trying to say here is that over at least 10 years, in fact, closer to 20 years, there is a consistent declining trend of WBTV ratings. And it's been so consistent over so many years that I would expect it con- to continue indefinitely into the future. And unless there is some tremendous other factor, I would expect it to continue. And all right, now that, now partly this is about Doty popularity in that I think this is related to a thought I've, I've had a number of times over, over the last many months, I don't know, year or so, where you, you could... Think about this this simple formula that I've told some people is that WrestleNomics equals star power plus media distribution. That is, to make money in pro wrestling, especially on a large scale, you have to have star power and you have to have a wide-scale media distribution platform. And we have entered a moment now where there are other brands that are in some ways able to challenge or be comparable to WWE's ability to to fulfill that formula. W has the media distribution platform. It's been on the USA network. Now it's even on Fox. They are in the majority of homes. They are on good, strong TV networks. Now TNA over a number of years, roughly 2005 to 2014, was on Spike TV, now the Paramount network, which is in the majority of US homes. But I don't think TNA was ever able to build stars or gain enough trust over enough time to really be as much of a comparison to WWE. So maybe maybe there should be a third uh, factor in that equation, maybe something like trust or goodwill. And that's trust not only from the market, from the consumers, from the, the fans and potential fans, but trust from the workers, whether that be wrestlers or other kinds of workers, talent, staff. And now you have another player in AEW that has a comparable media distribution platform with TNT. TNT is a comparable profile to the USA Network. It's in a similar number of homes. It is, has a similar amount of social status, if you will, within the media environment and within, with consumers. I would argue that W has demonstrated, especially over the last 10, 15 years, arguably 20 years, and increasingly so, as we get toward the present, that WWE is unable to develop new stars. The jury is out whether AEW will be able to create new stars that matter to their business and help their business. But they don't have a Vince McMahon in their company standing in the way, so at least there's a hope. AEW also has reason for consumers and for workers in the business to trust them uh, more so than WE does. W consumers and to some extent W workers have had their trust damaged by WWE you could say similarly for TNA and that is a fragile thing but while WWE has the name ID and the resources and the legacy and the video library and the developmental system and the memories in people's minds of being basically the only wrestling brand that matters over the last 20 years what they lack in terms of ability to cultivate new stars and in terms of trust among consumers And workers is significant. And when I wrote that article in September 2019, I think it was more true than it is now. But NXT has really differentiated itself as far as being a brand and having a separate relationship with fans, perhaps even with workers, than the WWE main roster brand or brands do. And I think that's diminished over over time a bit since NXT has been on the USA Network two hours every week. But there is still, to this day, still a a greater trust relationship between NXT and its audience, and the main roster and its audience. And that, as well, is no small thing. What's the point? The point is, I don't see how, over time, when NXT is on the USA Network, and AEW is on the TNT Network, how Raw and SmackDown, which do have going for them, the long and great legacy... Despite that, I don't see how over a long enough timeline that, that that their leadership over NXT and AEW is sustainable in light of their inferior trust relationships with their consumers and their workers and their inferior ability to cultivate stars. And in and in the case of NXT, like AEW, I don't know if they're going to be able to cultivate stars that matter to their business that matter to the economic life of their brand. But at least you've got Vince McMahon not in the way of cultivating stars in that brand, at least for now. Which I strongly believe has been the key factor that has stood in the way of stars being created. So if you're NXT and you don't have Vince McMahon in your way, you've got a chance. Now that being said, I think NXT is hindered by being in the WWE world where they use all sorts of weird language and weird production techniques. And over over scripting and being positioned within the WWE world as the third most important brand. And all that said, I think there's almost like a a disease like contagion in what WWE has done to the overall wrestling creative landscape in terms of you got uh, a lot of people, including NXT and AEW and tons of other brands and promotions throughout the world, big and small, who have been so informed by WWE's creative process and its repeated mistakes and its repeated tropes. That people just sort of have internalized that many of the things that WWE does, even though they may be economically counterproductive, counterproductive to cultivating and growing an audience. We've internalized those things and just accepted those things as normal, as wrestling. And then we become prone to make the same mistakes that WWE has made for all of these years. I'll let you fill in the blanks with particular examples and particular kinds of things that I'm talking about. And I don't mean that to be like a hypercriticism or to be overly critical. It's sort of just human nature that creativity tends to be quite derivative. I think overall that's true, well beyond wrestling. And when we try to be creative, we tend to be derivative of the things that we've seen. So extra care needs to be taken to discerning what is good that W has done and what is counterproductive. Now, on the other hand, I don't strongly expect that to happen, and I feel almost kind of uncool when I say certain things here that I think are, on, on one hand, quite obvious, but I've got like a lack of bandwagon uh, with me doing this. In that it seems very uncool in some ways to be critical of WWE, even though what they've done on the whole, I think, has been quite detrimental to the wrestling industry overall and their business, but the business overall while at the same time that they're very successful and are going to be as profitable as they've ever been, more profitable than they've ever been this year. Because I think what's happening is most people of a certain platform uh, are not willing to be critical because you never know when your next paycheck or your first paycheck may come from WWE. So there is not an abundance of voices with any skin in the game who are willing to say the truth. And that makes the sort of creative reflection and the discerning that needs to happen to weed out the good ideas from the bad ideas, the fact of that dynamic, where people of any sort of power or influence are economically dissuaded from openly thinking critically about wrestling and about its biggest creative player. So, I don't really think I plan to... talk about any of that, but there you go. Uh, And you get paid for doing your little show and bringing people out here and being some sort of, you know, high pollutant type guy. I'm down with that. That's cool. Because I I love freedom of expression. This is great. At the same time, you can't tell me
0: how to run my business and what people want to see because if they wanted to see your your kind of rustling you're talking about, that's what we would have out there. Okay.
1: So these are comments from now former W co-president Michelle Wilson from a conference with Needham Anyway, it's Laura Martin's firm. This is from May 15th, 2018, where Michelle Wilson talks about the pay-per-view business. More Nomics, and more about the pay-per-view business after this.
2: Interestingly, we were on, um, it was probably about 2012 when um, I I came on board in 2009. One of my responsibilities that Vince gave me was running our um, infamous pay-per-view business. And um, much like Charlotte, I came from the NBA. I came from the world of tennis where um, the the vernacular, even the business model of pay-per-view didn't exist. So of course, when I was given the responsibility to run pay-per-view, I'm like, what is pay-per-view? I don't even understand how it works. And so the very first pay-per-view I ordered was um, Royal Rumble in 2009. And I said, well, people pay, you know, $55, $60 for this. Um, And it's almost was almost a good thing that I didn't have too much knowledge about what the traditional business model was for WWE. So one of the things I would constantly ask Vince is, you know, this is the most valuable WWE content happens on this pay-per-view platform. And yet, um, it's priced, you know relatively expensively um, and again we're still in business with our partners and we love them but as a consumer you know ordering on a remote and kind of the whole experience I was like well how many of our fans are really watching pay-per-view our best content wasn't getting out there so it really started this journey in 2012 of, of George Barrios CFO and who's co-president with me of us really challenging and asking Vince you know what what do we need to be doing what's kind of the next level for us and the natural progress. So the natural course was, well, let's launch a network like everybody else says. Let's launch a traditional linear ad-supported network. And that was really the journey that we went on. Yeah. The hard part was really the research and really digging deeper beyond kind of the traditional path, which I think Vince has been notorious for not just doing the traditional, but really looking at the future and what, lo- what was lying ahead. And so we did a, a lot of research. And what the research told us was that while a traditional ad-supported network might be logical, our WWE fans at the time were consuming five times as much content on digital platforms. They were on YouTube. They were Netflix subscribers. They were Hulu subscribers. And in 2012, that was pretty unheard of, but they were five times more likely to be consuming content that way. So for us, it was light bulb went off it was like well if that's the future maybe that's the path that we should be going down now the difficult part of it your question being what was difficult everything was difficult because there was literally you know there was no playbook for what we were doing other than Netflix and Hulu which were video companies that started in that business they weren't transforming a legacy pay-per-view business they weren't in the linear television business So for us, we were really going into unchartered territory. There were, there were no, um, other companies we could really look at and say, hey, this is how they did it. This is who they partnered with. This is what you're going to have to be prepared for. There was none of that. So it was, you know, um, George, myself, our team and Vince really, Trying to figure out where to go. And so I would say not having, not knowing what to do. So the the very first thing were all of the conversations for any companies who are trying to launch now. You know, what is the value proposition? What content will go there? And how are you going to price it? I mean, those were the things that we spent the most time talking about. And figuring that out and making sure that it was right for our fan base was really what we spent our time on and again we didn't have a crystal ball to say this was the right answer but we made that decision to say you know 999 was a logical price point we created chants around it maybe not quite as popular as the woo but you know our fans were chanting 999 and they understood that the best content that we created it was a new tier it was available at an affordable price on the WWE Network. So again, having the right proposition was really what we spent our most time on initially in the first phase. And again, it was was not easy. It was a lot of long debates without a playbook. Well, and one of the things about digital is they get to market fast and then they iterate. You guys did buy what I would call the old media world, which is you figure it all out ahead of time, which costs you extra time. But you really haven't iterated. It's been nine ninety nine the whole time. You keep adding more library content to the to the mix and more original content. Exactly. But but I think I would guess that was in the playbook right when you launched. Like probably it isn't that iterative other than maybe the type of content you're making is now more focus based on what the data you're getting it's more data analysts analysts, for sure yeah we've gotten obviously I mean that was one of the um, probably the other challenges was being prepared for the data side of what this brought to all of us at WWE we had literally one data scientist when we launched the WWE network and now we had all this data coming in if you fast forward we now have a team of over 30 data scientists that help us understand what are the yeah. subscribers watching, how do we target them, how do we segment them, what, how do we recommend other programming. So the data has certainly um, changed how we market and how we promote the network. But yes, I mean, we. one of the things that I think WWE is great about is consistency in our yeah. business strategy, yeah. consistency in how we communicate to our fan base so we feel um, until our entire kind of available market who could buy the WWE Network understands what it is and understands the price point, mm-hmm. it's better to keep it simple. Yeah, rather than iterating.
1: So there's Michelle Wilson, the former co-president of WWE, who was apparently fired. I think I think we know that she's fired based on the fact that she's getting severance. Uh, on January 30th, 2020, along with other co-president, George Berrios, there's Michelle Wilson talking about the infamous pay-per-view business. So it seems like her view was that, consider that you've got pay-per-views here, which is your most premium content. These are the events that everything builds to, where the payoffs are, where the matches that you hype up on TV are happening. The biggest matches of the year happen on your pay-per-view events. So the thought was, well, let's say you've got multiple millions of people watching on television in the U.S., many millions more outside of the U.S. are watching Raw and SmackDown on a weekly basis. But you've only got a few hundred thousand buying most pay-per-views. The WrestleMania each year does about a million pay-per-views. We're talking pre-network because We're building up to that. But your B pay-per-views doing two, three hundred thousand. Bigger pay-per-views doing a few more. And then maxing out around a million for WrestleMania. So many times less than your TV viewership. So it seems like the thought process was, well, how can we get more people? We've got... So many millions of people watching our, our TV programs every week. How, how can we get more people to get in on that transaction, to get in on that high-value content, the pay-per-view events, to see those payoffs, to see the big matches? And the thought process was, well, maybe a reason why they're not uh, watching the pay-per-views. It's our least consumed content. Maybe the reason why people aren't consuming the pay-per-views as much is because of the price point. WWE pay-per-views, at least in the U.S., were priced at $50, $55. So maybe there's a way that WWE could get people to consume all of them if the price was lowered. And thus, the WWE Network was born. Or at least the WWE Network that we ended up knowing. That idea. $10 a month. You get library content, all sorts of other stuff, along with the pay-per-views. Even in the WrestleMania month. $10 a month. $9.99. And I bring this up now. Again, because we've learned the news uh, through the Wrestling Observer Newsletter that it looks like pay-per-view buys for AEW's pay-per-view, Double or Nothing, has done over 100,000 buys again. So 100,000 buys is not much by the WWE scale, particularly the pre-network WWE scale. But for a non w company, that's pretty good. And that's in the range of what AEW pay-per-views have done in the past. Now, really, AEW doesn't know yet what the total number of buys was, but they do know what the BR live and the fight pay-per-view numbers were, the digital pay-per-view numbers were. And based on earlier trends, it looks like the Double or Nothing show will have done about 100,000 to 110,000 pay-per-view buys. <laughs> so Melter and the Observer is reporting that Double or Nothing did about 100,000 to 110,000, or if cable trends hold up, 115 to 120,000 buys which would roughly equal the final numbers for the first double or nothing last year, 2019. Price point for this pay-per-view, $50. Each AEW pay-per-view has been a $50 price point. So again, I think this supports this idea that in hindsight, in 2014 when WWE launched the WWE Network, pay-per-view was not dead. Pay-per-view is still very lucrative for UFC. Pay-per-view is still very lucrative for major boxing events. And considering the immense cost of launching the WB Network, pay-per-view is probably still the optimal way to monetize major wrestling events. And I've been thinking lately, as much as it would perpetuate a lot of anecdotes about how people are dissatisfied with the change, I think it would be in the best interest of the industry overall, not just WB, but particularly the industry overall, if... WB took most of its pay-per-view events, or at least the key ones, the biggest ones, off of the W network sooner rather than later and put them back onto a a la carte type of price point type of offering where those events are being charged at least $50 for. It's best for WB because it makes WB more profitable because they'll still have a W network that they can make money from. There will still be some sort of subscriber base, probably in the hundreds of thousands, who will keep WB for the library, if nothing else. And as much as it may create some customer upheaval, it may turn some people off, money generated from pay-per-view, or at least in W's case, it's probably just going to be a pay-per-view rights deal where they sell the pay-per-views to someone else who then sells them or monetizes them in some way, whether that's Peacock or ESPN Plus or some other major streaming player. But it's the best thing for the industry overall because the sooner that the wrestling consumer base gets reaccustomed and reintroduced to the idea that major, peak wrestling events are worth more than $10, the more, the easier it will be for other players in the industry. So this part, not necessarily in W's interest, but the easier it will be for other players in the industry to create events that are sustainable and profitable. Because WB, for the last six years, has been teaching the consumer base that major events are worth, at most, $10 and as much as some people will go kicking and screaming or may just outright refuse to enter into a different kind of transaction reverting to the pay-per-view model all things all things consider in hindsight would be the healthier thing financially for WWE and would allow any other wrestling company a better shot at making more money and making more profitable events overall now to go back this all would have worked out fine if the WWE network had been subscribed to by 3 to 4 million people, which is what WB projected as they were rolling out the network in 2014. And it makes some sense. I mean, look at other streaming services, look at Netflix, and the numerous other major streaming players that have emerged in the last couple of years. They've got tens of millions of subscribers. As we stand here today, Netflix has well over 100 million subscribers. So surely it's the reason that WB Network could, could capture a small percentage of those. And as Michelle Wilson noted in the clip that we just listened to, they found in some sort of study that they did, apparently, that WWE fans tended to be the kinds of people who were more likely to subscribe to over-the-top streaming services like Netflix and Hulu. So this all would have worked out fine if pro wrestling would have functioned more like normal, regular, mainstream entertainment. But as much as people in WWE have messaged it, As such, wrestling is not just entertainment in the way that movies and TV are, the way the movies and TV shows that are on Netflix are, or on Hulu. Wrestling is more like a sport, and I mean that economically, not just in what what I personally prefer out of it. It functions economically as this strange medium that overlaps this space between scripted entertainment, yes, but also live sports. And there is nothing else in the world that is like it. And part of the lesson of the W Network, I think, teaches us that if you overly analogize wrestling to be entertainment and don't account for the ways in which it functions in society and economics, like a sport, the results may not turn out the way you expect them to. And those 3 to 4 million subscribers who you expected to subscribe to the W Network may never show up, and they didn't, and they're not going to. Now your questions. We have uh, two questions here from Mark and from Ricardo that are similar in some ways. so I'll read them back to back here. From Mark, do you think there's a certain point where ratings and viewership drop enough to where Vince is forced out by investors or the TV companies? Or is this going to be the Titanic where he goes down with the whole ship? Forced out, Mark means, as in the head of creative, obviously he'll never sell. Ricardo also asks, with Triple H reportedly getting a demotion within the company, despite no reason given on why it occurred or what his personal response was to it, and recent W ratings decreasing every year, has the WB as a whole given investors confidence on how Vince Creative runs forward? So one major point on uh, what uh, 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 something that I think needs to be talked about uh, in both of those questions is I don't think the vast majority of the investors know or care or understand the dynamics of Vince McMahon as head of creative, what it means to the company. I think they, they value it, in fact. They don't recognize it as a problem. Vince McMahon's duties as creative, uh, as far as investors perceive things, are all bound up into all the value that he has to the company as a CEO. And the, the vast majority of what makes up the WWE investor psychology as it concerns Vince McMahon in particular is mostly about this is the founder. If he's not around, things will be uncertain. He's important to the company and the vast majority of the investor psychology is not dealing with or is not aware of that. Vince McMahon, they're not aware of this discussion that wrestling fans... And wrestling commentators are having about the effect that Vince is having on the creative and, and more importantly, its ability to develop stars, which would feed many economic factors. So to get to Mark's question, do I think there's a certain point where ratings and viewers should drop enough to where Vince is forced out by investors or TV companies? Or is the Titanic going to go down with the ship? Um, I don't think investors will ever force him to do anything. As you know, he'll, he'll never sell the company. He has the vast majority of the voting power. I don't see the, the TV networks either recognizing the key problem. I think they the TV networks are run by people who aren't necessarily wrestling fans. And I think the TV networks may or may already do ask for certain things and try to find ways that the programs can be spruced up and viewership can be enhanced. I think they probably do that all the time. But are they going to ask that the CEO step away from the creative aspects of his company I doubt it. I don't I don't know that they could without harming, I guess, the relationship between the content producer, WB and, and the TV network. So, so I don't see that happening, uh, at least not until the issues around Vince and creative become more of like a, a mainstream thing that's talked about, which seems hard to imagine. And on to Ricardo's question, has WB as a whole given investors confidence with how Vince slash creative runs uh, moving forward? And I think that's kind of similar. I don't think investors are watching so closely or thinking about how Vince is, how is Vince good at, at creative? Is he good as a booker or whatever? Or was Triple H really better? I don't think the vast majority of the investor psychology is discerning that. But, but I do think investors feel fairly confident in the company because this is a company that uh, if you're an investor, you want the company to be, to be as profitable as possible. And what's going to assure WB's financial picture is whether or not it's going to get its TV rights fees throughout the, this coronavirus period. And it looks by all indications that they will. And if I'm an investor, I have a great deal of confidence that WE is going to have a very profitable year, quite possibly its most profitable year ever. So that would give me a fair amount of confidence uh, in the company financially, which is the thing that matters to investors. And as long as WE is able to continue to rely on big, valuable business partnerships, with its TV partners, and in other areas where it gets a lot of guaranteed money over a a multi-year contract like it does from Saudi Arabia. As long as WWE is able to extract a ton of revenue, as they do now, from business partnerships and rely less on revenue that it gets directly from fans, depending on whether or not people are into the product and feel compelled to spend money on it, as long as they continue to rely more on businesses and less on consumers whatever problems anybody perceives is going on with creative become quite obscured. C asks, is there a future where WE sets up some number of small venues around the country and does most of their shows from the buildings that they own? And I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of like one of the lessons that it seems that maybe we would learn coming out of coronavirus, where it's clear that it's way cheaper to run TV out of the performance center. I mean, I don't see that happening in the near term. Maybe that's a strategy down the line for, for someone, uh, someone else in the wrestling industry or maybe a, an, an even less popular WWE in the future where you're a company that, that can't necessarily fill up a sports arena with thousands of people. And there may be some TV rights value bound up in, in the idea that you're doing live programming from a sports arena versus maybe a smaller venue. So, so maybe that, and this sort of raises another question that I don't know the answer to is, is there a, is there a business out there that owns that does already is already in this situation? Uh, is there a business out there that owns multiple, I guess, MSG maybe, right? That owns multiple arenas uh, around the country. MSG owns the, they just bought the forum in LA, I think. But is there a, is there a, a business that already owns a handful of, of sports venues around the country that business may be in a good position to start a major wrestling company, I guess, if they can get a good TV deal, of course. And we'll do two more. The next from Lavi predictions on the percentage of independent promotions who close up shop and never return. Can they weather the storm without fixed salary costs? What will new Japan, USA ring of honor, MLW impact business models look like in six months? Okay. So there's a couple questions there. I think the percentage of independent promotions, at least in the U.S., that close up shop and never return will be very low. And the independent companies are, a lot of them, especially the smaller ones, just sort of run as a hobby for a lot of these people. Um, I think a lot of independent promotions are not uh, profitable. Or they maybe run at a small loss. But anyway, the the overhead for having or running an independent promotion is fairly low. Maybe you have to store your ring And then again, there's there's some companies out there that just rent rings to run their shows with. They don't even own a ring, so they don't have one to store. The independent companies, they don't have any employees, the vast majority of them. They don't really have any ongoing costs. And all of their costs are bound up in running the periodic shows that they run. You know, they may have a license. They may have, I don't know, a website, uh, website expenses. They may have certain other uh, commission-inflicted expenses, And even those could be allowed to lapse, and they can be renewed when the time comes in the future. So yes, I I definitely think that independent wrestling companies will be able to weather the storm. And I think it'll be a long time before, just like the wrestling at large, it'll be a long time before we see independent wrestling back to how it was a few months ago. Although I I do know that there was at least one indie show in, in Oklahoma, which Lavi himself shared with me the other day. What will New Japan USA Ring of Honor MLW impact business models look like in six months? In six months it will be November thirtieth, and it'll probably think I think things will probably look somewhat similar to how they look now. I don't know that there's going to be large scale events. Uh, maybe there will be because we're already seeing Tokyo go back to normal. But then again, we here in the US are easing restrictions with a much higher rate of cases than Japan did, than Japan had when it started to ease restrictions. So, who knows, we may be seeing a, a second wave on its way in the US. William asks Thoughts on transitioning from doing wrestling events in the before times as a performer to doing research and analysis of economic events due to the shutdown? Does it feel the same as wrestling or are there differences? Well, there's no bumps, there's no long car rides. So, I appreciate those things. So, in some ways, it's been nice. It's been a physical and a mental break. And I've been able to devote even more of my time to studying and understanding the business, and I feel like I've made some progress in that area. I can say I I, I wouldn't mind a a few months of an off-season in wrestling, but that will never happen. So that's all I have for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for still tuning in and tapping it into your podcast app, even though it was a day late. If you want to learn more about the professional wrestling business, go to WrestleNomics.com. If you want to support WrestleNomics, you can sign up to independentwrestling.tv and you can get a free trial by using the promo code WrestleNomics. Five-day free trial, independentwrestling.tv. Use the promo code WrestleNomics. If you become a paid subscriber, that helps me. I get a cut of it. If you want to support WrestleNomics, you can tell people about it. Tell people about the show. Tell people about the writing. Tell people about the data. Try to read. Try to learn. Try to avoid the ad revenue. If you'd like to follow me on the popular PC and mobile game known as Twitter, follow Russellnomics at Russellnomics. Follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place.